This talk is brought to you by the Thomistic Institute. For more talks like this, visit us at ThomisticInstitute.org. So this talk is entitled, Does God Exist? A Good Question. And the point of this talk is mostly to sort of motivate you to a reading of question two of the Summa Theologiae. So question two contains probably the most famous thing in St. Thomas's writings, his five proofs for the existence of God. So a lot of people maybe know St. Thomas only from that. There are a number of other famous teachings of his, but this has a certain catchiness to it and a certain popularity and a certain interest that has made it something which gets sort of extracted from his work in general and emphasized and people play around with these proofs and try to figure them out and stuff like that. So, so it's an important thing, but it belongs in not only the greater context of St. Thomas's work, not only in the greater context of the Summa Theologiae, but also the context of just question two. Question two is about the existence of God and the way that St. Thomas asks this question is of interest. We can begin by thinking about the fact that this is not question one. Question one is the beginning of the Summa where St. Thomas asks, what is, we would say, theology? He prefers the term sacred doctrine. He's talking about what we would call theology, that is, the science of God, but he prefers to call it sacred doctrine. And in question one, he sort of sets out how it is that he intends science to be understood. So St. Thomas wants to make it clear that we can know God from the start. The knowledge of God is possible for us. So in question one, he sets out some guidelines for how he's going to treat the knowledge of God. So that's a very interesting thing in itself. I will pass over it. Question two is then the real starting point. So it's where the Summa begins its proper work. And it is about the existence of God. It's followed by a number of other questions which we can sort of compare. So number three, question three, God's simplicity. So you can already start to think about the fact that simplicity is not included necessarily in God's existence. Question four, perfection, God as perfect. Okay, so it goes on and on and on after that. We begin with God's existence. Uh, a friend of mine who is kind of a clever reader of ancient texts said recently to me that, you know, he was joking, he said, you notice that it never says in the Bible that God exists. <laughs> Where does it say in the Bible that God exists? Uh, I admit that I was sort of stumped for a little while. Um, but, okay, it does, in fact, say it. The Bible does teach that God exists. Okay, so this is, this is text number one. If you look at Hebrews 11, 5 through 6. By faith, Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now, before he was taken, he was attested as pleasing God. And without faith, it is impossible to please him. For 
Whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists. There it is. And that he rewards those who seek him. Do you know who Enoch is? Enoch is a very mysterious figure in the book of Genesis. There's basically just a couple of sentences about him. Enoch walked with God and he was not. So we have this mysterious testimony that there was someone who was pleasing to God. We don't really know why. And God took him. The tradition treats this as, you know, Enoch was sort of assumed into heaven. So the author of the letter to the Hebrews does a little reasoning about this. He says, without faith, it is impossible to please him. For whoever draws near to God must believe that he exists. He's saying that in order to draw near to God, which is what happened to Enoch, he was drawn out of earth into heaven near to God. What is, what is the bare minimum? What is necessary? He must believe that God exists. So that's why he says at the beginning of this passage, by faith. He's saying, this proves that Enoch had faith. So faith that God exists, the basic prerequisite for drawing near to God. So, the reasoning of the letter to the Hebrews connects God's existence to faith. Not necessarily to knowledge, is another way of saying that. So, by faith, Enoch believed that God exists. This is something that should set the tone for this whole question. Question two. It's by faith that we know that God exists that we believe in him, and that we become pleasing to him and draw near to him. Okay, so given that, the question, does God exist, could be a bad question. And there are two main ways I just want to talk about how it could be a bad question. So a bad question can mean a number of different things. And by looking at the theological tradition before St. Thomas and contemporary to St. Thomas, we can notice what a couple of those ways are. So for one, we can think about the question, does God exist, as a bad question because it's dumb, because it's a stupid question. And what would that mean? If does God exist were a dumb question, it would mean the answer is obvious. Sort of like if any person asked this question, they were being sort of dishonest with themselves. Really, they know that God exists, but they're trying to avoid this knowledge somehow. So it's a bad question in the way that to pretend that you didn't know about a law that you were breaking, which you did know, in order to fool an officer of the law who was aware that you were messing this up. Okay, so it's, it's like a deliberate ignorance. And this has a strong tradition in the thinker known as Saint Anselm. So Anselm was a Benedictine monk, an Italian. He was eventually made the Archbishop of Canterbury in the 11th century. And besides being a great thinker, he's a very interesting guy. 
And in his writings, he's concerned that his fellow monks increase through study and inquiry the sort of arsenal of their Christian faith, their Christian preaching through the life that they live of wisdom and love. So St. Paul says in Romans 1 that God's invisible being, God's existence, has been obvious to everyone from the beginning of time, simply because of what exists all around us. We know that God exists. And there is this character that pops up in Scripture who says, there is no God. He is named the fool. So the fool says to himself, there is no God. And so what Anselm does in his work, the Prosologion, is to try to inhabit the mind of the fool. He concludes that anyone with a mind, even a fool, can prevent his mind from working in a certain way. And if he denies that God exists, that God exists he will still conceive God in his mind. Okay. So the idea of St. Anselm is that if you hear the word God, the notion of God will sort of pop up into your head, and it won't be something that you can say, maybe it doesn't exist. What would be a counterexample? Unicorn. When I say unicorn, something comes to your mind. A horse with a horn on its head. Okay, we know what it is. But you can say to yourself, I know what it is, and it doesn't exist. Anselm thinks that God is something which, right when you hear the word, not only do you know what it means, everybody understands what it means, but you know that, that the very idea of God entails that it exists. Okay. So... That than which greater, no greater can be thought. This is the sort of phrase that he sort of boils it down to. That than which no greater can be thought includes the very notion of existence. And when something includes a notion, we say that it is self-evident. So God's existence is self-evident. So this is a powerful distinction between what something is and that it is. And it's important for St. Thomas, too. And if we want to think about this in terms of Anselm, this monk had another monk write back to him and say, I don't think this makes any sense. He, he wrote a letter on behalf of the fool. And he says, you know, just because you imagine like the greatest island that there could ever be, does that mean that it really exists in reality? No. That's a leap that is not necessary. So this other monk named uh, Gaunillo comes up with this reply on behalf of the fool. And in a way, Thomas Aquinas will embrace Gaunillo's position. So we'll come back to that in a little bit. So this is the idea that does God exist is a bad question because it's a dumb question. Second possibility, B, 2B on your handout. This can be sort of represented by the, the Franciscan theologian, St. Bonaventure. So Bonaventure was a contemporary of St. Thomas, and he was actually probably a little bit more famous of a teacher than Thomas at the time. 
in the university. And we could say that the question, does God exist, is a problematic question or a bad question because it means that the person who's asking it is a bad person. So a bad question in the sense of it's a bad questioner. So to understand this, you might sort of think about like there's a family on its way to church. There's a bunch of kids. They're in the back seat. And one of the kids has just sort of realized that like he can, he can be bad. So he, of course, doesn't want to go to church at all. Um, and he conceives that if he asks an innocent question about God's existence, then he might undermine this whole project of going to church and he might be released. And when he asks the question, does God exist, he has become a bad boy. So being a bad boy, a question that a bad boy would ask, it's something which seems sort of silly because it's like, okay, everybody else knows that he's not, it's his, everybody else sees what's going on. But to himself, to himself, he has become a bad boy. Okay, this is something like the idea writ large of St. Bonaventure. The Franciscan theologian follows St. Anselm to a certain degree, writing about the self-evidence of God, but he spins it out in a direction that is especially focused on the primacy, the firstness of God, that God is first. So God is the sort of background of everything. Everything that has some existence or being has a certain secondness, and it can always be detected that there is a first, there's a primary thing. And no one thinks about anything without a kind of intellectual tribute to this first one. And so this is not doing great justice to the thought of St. Bonaventure. So I'm, I'm sort of coming up with a Bonaventurian objection. Here's something that St. Bonaventure does say. Thoughts of God must be most pious because the essence is the origin of all things, creates all things, and because all things proceed from it. Unless you admit that the totality of beings proceeds from God, you are not thinking of God most piously. So thinking of God most piously. Bonaventure sees a kind of intellectual ingratitude in the question, does God exist? A sort of willful blindness. He says, quote, strange then is the blindness of the intellect, which does not consider that which it sees first and without which it can know nothing. So, these are the two possibilities we might think of when we see that St. Thomas is asking the question, does God exist? That his predecessors and his contemporaries think that God's existence is either self-evident and or it would be bad to question it. It would make you an impious person. So St. Thomas is stepping in a direction 
of danger by asking the question, does God exist? So we have to come up with a reason why this is a good question. And I think St. Thomas does have lots of good reasons why it's a good question. One way that we can look at these ideas about God's existence is by comparing this famous text in question two to another text of St. Thomas, which you could say is more pious, his commentary on the Gospel of John. So in his commentary on John, which was one of the things that he was working on towards the end of his life, along with the Summa, the prologue contains a bunch of proofs for the existence of God. It's kind of weird. They're kind of similar to the things that we read about in question two. The second text that I've given you, why don't we turn to that now? So Thomas thinks that John is a contemplative. John is the contemplative given to us by God in the scriptures as the example of how to see God most clearly and most in a most lofty way. So he's talking about the different ways that contemplation works. And St. Thomas says here, in the prologue, contemplation is full when someone is able to consider all the effects of a cause in the cause itself. That is, when he knows not only the essence of the cause, but also its power, according to which it is diffused toward many things. So to know God in his effects, that is, the things that he's doing, that he has done, that he has created, is to know God more completely than simply by knowing him in his essence. And this is even more kind of like bracing, I think. He goes on to say, the fullness of contemplation is possessed by natural science, which considers things as proceeding from God. The ancient idea of natural science is broader than ours. It would mean like everything that moves, the physics in the ancient categorization of philosophy would be about things that move. So math is about things that don't move, things that are eternally the way they are, immobile, whereas physics is about knowledge of things that move or are moved. So we're talking about all of creation. Even the angels in a certain sense move in comparison with the immobility of the prime unmoved mover. So the fullness of contemplation is possessed by natural science, which considers things as proceeding from God. So the knowledge of all things as they proceed from God gives us a science that can be sort of folded in to our very knowledge of God himself. So I think that this is the first reason why this is a good question. I'm going to give three. Three reasons why St. Thomas's question, does God exist, is a good question and why we should read it and think about it. So the first one is this, the fullness of contemplation. We were made to contemplate God. Along with the angels, we're the only beings in the universe who are able to contemplate God, which makes us filled with God. To be filled with God is to share his nature according to our capacity and to be, as a result of that, happy. 
So the fullness of contemplation is what God wants for us. So that's one reason why if we think about God's existence by following out his effects in creation, we're doing a good thing. Okay, number two is a practical question. So the first thing is the fullness of contemplation. Number two, why this is a good question. It helps us to start theology. So like I said, St. Thomas describes what he thinks theology is in question one. And then in question two, he gets started. He says, every science begins with proving that the thing that it's a science of exists. So many sciences, that seems to us like a silly question. Like you don't need to prove that biology has a subject. We all know that there are living things. But other sciences, we might need to sort of prove that their subject matter exists. Certain subatomic particles, I don't know. And especially things which are invisible. So not only subatomic particles, but also angels and God. We need to prove that they exist in order to have a study of them. So this for St. Thomas is the way that you get started. If we want to know anything at all about God, we need to start here with his existence. And we can then move to what he's like. So the question, quid sit and quo modo sit, or what he's like, or what kind of thing he is, follow after this primary question of does he exist? And then we have a starting point. So that one's a little less romantic than the fullness of contemplation a little bit more quotidian and practical. So those are the two of three reasons why this is a good question. The third is because this is about our perfection. God's existence brings us towards our own perfection. So I mentioned earlier that we have question two about God's existence, question three about his simplicity, that he is simple, and then question four, perfection. And an interesting thing happens in question four. God is perfect in a certain sense, in that he lacks nothing, and he's fully in act, which for St. Thomas means that he has no potential to be any other way than he is. He is fully existence, okay? But in another sense, perfection means something that isn't yet and has come to be, or wasn't yet and has come to completion. And in this sense, God isn't, we do not say that God is perfect because God did not come to be perfect. He did not achieve a fullness of actuality from some kind of other way of being. That's what we do. So Thomas brings this up to say that perfection is more properly said of us than about God. Right in these questions about God's nature, he announces the fact that our perfection is what's at stake here. At the same time, we can look at, in question two, I'm going to turn to question two now, and the first objection of the first article. 
So like I said, I'm trying to sort of color some of these things for you so that you want to read them yourself. Article one, whether the existence of God is self-evident. So this is that objection from St. Anselm. And the first objection is, it seems that the existence of God is self-evident. This is not Anselm's approach. This is another objection that St. Thomas is spinning out. Now those things are said to be self-evident to us, the knowledge of which is naturally implanted in us, as we can see in regard to first principles. But as John Damascene says, the knowledge of God is naturally implanted in all, therefore the existence of God is self-evident. So naturally implanted in us. St. Thomas replies to this, to know God, or to know that God exists in a general and confused way, is implanted in us by nature, inasmuch as God is man's beatitude. So God is our happiness, our beatitude. And in a way, then, the knowledge of God's existence is implanted in us by nature. For man naturally desires happiness, and what is naturally desired by man must be naturally known to him. This, however, is not to know absolutely that God exists. Just as to know that someone is approaching is not the same as to know that Peter is approaching, even though it is Peter who is approaching. Does that make sense? So we have God in us, and we know that there is something like him which is our happiness. It really is him who is our happiness, but we know only in a general and confused way that it is God. Like if there's a guy walking towards you, that guy is Peter, and you see that some guy is walking toward you, but you don't know yet that it's Peter. And this is the knowledge that is naturally implanted in us. Okay, so for many there are who imagine that man's perfect good, which is happiness, consists in riches, and others in pleasures, and others in something else. So, the knowledge that God is our happiness is in us, but it's not clear how. We can also think about another famous phrase from St. Thomas, which we find in question one, that grace perfects nature. So nature, our nature, includes a capacity to be perfected. It is not yet perfect. So other animals' natures come into being pretty much perfect. Ours has a capacity to be perfected by something more. What is the something more? God. So God and his existence bring out of us something new. The knowledge of God is something which is in us in a confused and general way. And when it becomes clearer, sharper, and more rationally grasped, it brings out something new in our nature, so to speak. So, just a brief run through a couple of points about the five ways themselves, and then, then we'll finish. So again, this is to get you to be interested in reading question two yourself. And another sort of 
interesting thing about question two is that, again, St. Thomas raises objections. And often these are like better than his opponent's ability to phrase the objections. So that's something he's famous for. He was so good at understanding his opponents that he could speak on their behalf more eloquently than they could speak for themselves. And in the article where Thomas proves in five ways that God exists, the objections are very modern. So the first objection is, it seems that God does not exist because if one of two contraries be infinite, the other would be altogether destroyed. But the word God means that he has infinite goodness. If therefore God existed, there would be no evil discoverable, but there is evil in the world. Therefore God does not exist. There is evil in the world. Therefore God does not exist. Very modern. Furthermore, this is the second objection. It is superfluous to suppose that what can be accounted for by a few principles has been produced by many. But it seems that everything we see in the world can be accounted for by other principles, supposing God did not exist. So we have enough to explain the world without God. For all natural things can be reduced to one principle, which is nature. And all voluntary things, things that have to do with the will, can be reduced to one principle, which is human reason or will. Therefore, there is no need to suppose God's existence. So these are very interesting and powerful articulations of something which it takes modern people a long time to articulate. That good is the contrary of evil. So if there's evil, then how could there be an all-good being? And then also, if we have science, you know, the knowledge of nature, and if we have a study of human beings, which are like this weird thing that exists kind of outside of nature, then we don't need anything further. That's enough. And to come up with some other science of some transcendent thing is superfluous, unnecessary. Okay, so those are interesting ways that St. Thomas poses the objection. I'll let you find out his responses to them on your own. And then just as far as your reading of the five ways themselves. Now we had a conference on the five ways in Alabama not too long ago. So there's a lot of material there. We can talk maybe briefly just about the first of the five ways and then the last. The first, one important thing to notice if you're reading the first of the five ways is that it's often written using the word uh, motion. And this is a formulation of a proof from Aristotle, which Aristotle presents in two different places, particularly clearly in his physics and his metaphysics. And probably a better word than motion would be change. So the idea is that Every change is changed, is caused by some changer or mover. And ultimately, each of these changes requires an explanation which leads to another change. And this tracing out or reduction of change to changer 
must ultimately lead not to infinity, but to some first changer or mover. Okay, so some people this is immediately compelling. Other people say, well, there doesn't need to be a beginning of this series. This is a sort of begging the question, as we say. To say that there is a first is to just admit the whole question, to give away the contest. So it's, a, it's good to have interpreters to help with this kind of thing, I think. So I'm giving you a little bit of Ed Fazer, Edward Fazer. Uh, you received a book from him. And this is from a different book of his. He's describing this proof as one that's particularly that of Aristotle, which St. Thomas is using. So Edward Fazer says, referring to this proof about mo motion or change, being first in a temporal sense, in the sense of coming at some beginning point in time, is not what is at issue. But even the idea of a series of causes that is only finitely rather than infinitely long is not essential to the notion of a hierarchical causal series. To take an example sometimes used to illustrate the point, a paintbrush has no power to move itself, and it would remain powerless to move itself even if its handle were infinitely long. Hence, even if there could be an infinitely long brush handle, if it is actually going to move, there will still have to be something outside it which does have the built-in power to cause it to move. So the idea of a first mover is perhaps not as simple as it at first sounds. The first in a series of causes refers to something like the hand at the end of a stick which is moving a rock. So it's first in the sense of being causally first, not first in time, and not first absolutely speaking, like not every first thing is the first thing of the universe. So this can be one way to sort of get started on thinking about this idea of a prime mover, and then it can help to distinguish from other proofs in this article. Okay. The fifth way, then, is the last way. And since I brought up the commentary on the Gospel of John, I just want to make a comparison that is somewhat interesting. So the fifth way is the proof for God's existence from the fact that things in nature act for an end. An end in the Aristotelian and Thomistic sense is a goal, something towards which things move. Uh, it seems like ends, or uh, the, the word in Greek is telos, so teleology, has a certain unavoidable quality, especially when we think about like animal life, that the animals act for a reason, even if it's just an animal reason. But this is also considered to be true of all beings in the universe in the ancient mind, that heavy things act for a reason in the sense that they desire to go to their place, which is down. Okay, so that's a sort of slightly different way of thinking than, than ours. But so St. Thomas gives this proof, and he gives it in a different sense in the commentary on the Gospel of John, which is intriguing. He says, some that is, the ancient philosophers, attained to a knowledge of God through his authority. And this is the most efficacious way. 
So this is St. Thomas describing the fifth way using new terms, the most efficacious way. For we see the things in nature acting for an end and attaining to ends which are both useful and certain. And since they lack intelligence, they are unable to direct themselves, but must be directed and moved by one directing them and who possesses an intellect. Thus it is that the movement of the things of nature toward a certain end indicates the existence of something higher by which the things of nature are directed to an end and governed. Okay, so he's bringing up some shades of distinction that are somewhat, you know, we should note are different from question two. Useful and governed so that the one who's directing all things is doing so not only as a mover that is an end but as one who's concerned with the usefulness of all things so we're getting a little glimpse into the mind of the one who draws who moves by attracting them as an end governs them so directed to an end and governs and so since the whole course of nature advances to an end in an orderly way and is directed we have to posit something higher, which directs and governs them as a Lord, and this is God. So a Lord. This authority in governing is shown to be in the word of God when he says, Lord. So he's commenting on a text of scripture. Thus a psalm says, you rule the power of the sea, and you still the swelling of its waves, as though saying, you are the Lord, and govern all things. So it's, I think, beautiful to see that the same proof which St. Thomas uses in question two, which can be taken by someone who has no piety, is presented in this other text in a very similar way and in a very pious way. So this, we might say, is sort of we're getting at that Bonaventurian objection, that to speak about God as the first cause and as the final cause, the end of all things, is not impious. Okay, so to finish, here is a text from much later in the Summa. And I bring this up because it is St. Thomas making use of this verse that I started with, Hebrews 11. So St. Thomas in the Secunda Secundae begins with the question of faith. So now that we have proceeded through things about God and then about human beings and their happiness, how happiness works, begins with faith. And here he says the articles of faith, so the different beliefs that we articulate in the creed, stand in the same relation to the doctrine of faith as self-evident principles to a teaching based on natural reason. The articles of faith relate to faith itself, or the doctrine of the faith, the teaching of the faith. So you can think again of sacred doctrine from question one, as self-evident principles to a teaching based on natural reason. Among these principles, there is a certain order so that some are contained implicitly in others. Thus, all principles are reduced as to their first principle to this one. The same thing cannot be affirmed and denied at the same time, as the philosopher states. So he's relating to the, this to the first principle of reasoning, the principle of non-contradiction. In like manner, all the articles are contained implicitly in certain primary matters of faith, 
such as God's existence and his providence over the salvation of man. According to Hebrews 11, he that cometh to God must believe that he is and is a rewarder to them that seek him. For the existence of God includes all things that we believe to exist in God eternally, and in these our happiness consists. While belief in his providence includes all those things which God dispenses in time for man's salvation, and which are the way to that happiness, and in this way, again, some of those articles which follow from these are contained in others. Thus, faith in the redemption of mankind includes belief in the incarnation of Christ, his passion, and so forth. So this is a fascinating thing that St. Thomas thinks that in the existence of God, our belief in the existence of God, are contained basically all the other things about God. And these are not just pieces of knowledge about God, but they are the things in which our happiness consists. I showed you the words in Latin here because they're in the plural. It's just interesting. It's striking. The existence of God includes all things, omnia, that we believe to exist in God eternally. And in these, our happiness consists. The existence of God, then, is a full existence. It is filled with everything that will make us happy. And so we can come to understand the existence of God bit by bit, step by step, and in doing so, we understand more about what exists in God, a certain fullness of being, which to us has a great variety. Even though God in himself is simple, to us it has a great variety. And in that variety is reflected the perfection of God. So this is something that comes up a lot in St. Thomas's theory of creation, why there's this great variety in creation, why are there mountains and uh you know, Palo Verdes. There is a variety of creation that reflects a perfection that can't be expressed in simplicity to us. And in this, our happiness consists. So I hope that this is an effective invitation for you to delve into the study of the existence of God. And uh, that is the end. <laughs>